This morning's passage comes from John 3, verses 1 through 15. It can be found on page 943 in the Black Chair Bible in front of you. Hear the word of the Lord from John 3. There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How can anyone be born when he's old? Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can these things be? asked Nicodemus. Are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things? Jesus replied. Truly, I tell you, we speak what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Hey, welcome to Faith Church. My name is Godwin, one of the pastors here, and just delighted uh, to start this new series on the doctrine of conversion. We're going to be three weeks on this particular topic. Today, we're going to look at this incredible passage um, in John chapter 3. John is just such a great, um, powerful gospel and, and I'm just excited to, to kind of unpack this particular story uh, with you. Uh, so let's start with this, this thought. Let's kind of uh, try this on for size. Um, we currently live in a world with rapid and constant change. True or false? The pace of change is absolutely mind-boggling, right? The Apple MacBook you bought yesterday will be outdated next week. The political party you held in high esteem last year, you may abandon next year. The moral standards you held last decade will vehemently be challenged in the following decade, right? Change is inevitable. And for many of us, change or the thought of progress is, of course, a good thing. Change is something people desire. We want to be better people. We want to be happier people. We want to look better. We want to age well. We want to contribute more to society and give more to our family. So what do we do? We change. We make changes. We change our careers. We change our cities. We change our houses and neighborhoods. We change our hair. Sometimes we change our spouses or we change our genders. But friends, our hope in making these kind of changes is that it's going to make us happier. But do these changes actually make us better, 
happier, more useful to society? As we scan across present society and culture, do we see better and happier people? Or do we see more hopelessness and more angst? Now, as Christians, we must ask the question, what sort of change does the Bible prescribe? Changing our wardrobes, changing our hairstyles, changing our productivity levels? Not so much. The Bible's message speaks of a type of change that is so deep and intrinsic and internal, right? It doesn't speak about turning to a new life coach. It talks about turning to God. It doesn't speak about changing our careers or houses or hairdos. It talks about changing our masters. The Bible speaks about something called conversion. probably heard that before. And while conversion might be offensive in today's society, people kind of look to us sometimes as Christians and think you guys are being arrogant if you want people to convert to what you're doing. While that might be true, isn't this God's call over all of humanity? Whether you're looking at the Old Testament or the New Testament, there's this call that goes out through the Scriptures, a call to turn away from your idols, turn away from yourself, turn away from your sins, and turn to God. Turn to God for salvation, right? Well, here's the main point of this message. It's not going to surprise you. We just read this passage, a familiar passage, hopefully, to you. Here it is. You'll see it on your screen. You must be born again by the Spirit to enter God's kingdom. Real simple. You must be born again. There's a new birth that takes place, and it's according to the Spirit. It's by the Spirit. It's God wrought in order for you to enter into eternal life or God's future kingdom. Why a three-week series on conversion? Why did I choose this topic? Well, I think sometimes we say one thing, then we act a different way. We might say that God makes us new creations in Christ, but then we teach the next generation a sort of moralism that really any religion affirms. We might say that Christianity is all about a trusting, ongoing relationship with Jesus, but then we act like walking down an aisle and, and putting a check mark on some decision card is all you need to do. You're good to go. You're in. We might say that the Holy Spirit is the one that regenerates us and gives us new life, but then we try to use marketing techniques and tools to get them to kind of switch over to Christianity like it's changing cell phone companies or something. And the consequences of this are absolutely stunning and devastating. I mean, just think about the last five, six, seven decades in American evangelicalism. We've accumulated thousands and thousands and thousands of decisions for Jesus. But friends, how many of those decisions for Jesus are still following Christ? How many of them were decisions but not disciples? Something to consider, right? How many of those decisions are members of a local church, producing the fruit of the Spirit, practicing the one another's, putting the Bible to use in their workplace, preaching Christ to their neighbors, parenting out of the power of the gospel, giving to global missions, Friends, too many are not. It's a sad thing to say out loud at a church service, but it's true. This is not only an issue for the broader evangelical church, friends, it's an issue for faith church as well, which is why we have this series. I want you to notice at the bottom of your uh, note sheet, your outline, there's a few sources there. I encourage you to take a look at those sources, but I want to draw your attention to one particular source. It's this little book. It's so good. It's called Conversion. There you go, and you see the, the subtitle for our series is the subtitle of the book, How God creates a people. And this little book by Michael Lawrence is so, so good. And it's so, so brief. 
which means it's so, so cheap at our pastor's table, discounted. So go pick up this copy, and uh, you will really enjoy this. I read this in Gatlinburg by the side of the pool. I mean, it's, it was just great. So enjoy this book, and it will help you as we consider this particular doctrine. Okay, so I want to give you three truths about the new birth from this passage. Here's the first truth. You'll see it on your screen. The new birth is essential for entry into God's kingdom. It's essential for entry into God's kingdom. So what has happened so far in the Gospel of John? We've got to ask that question because context is key, right? Well, probably the biggest thing that has happened in the Gospel of John so far is that Jesus has performed one of his seven signs. He has turned water into wine at a wedding. You remember this story, right? And you'll notice at the end of chapter 2, verse 23, here's kind of the response of the city of Jerusalem. While he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. So people started to get interested in Jesus. They were impressed by Jesus. But then look at how Jesus thought about this in verses 24 and 25. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all. And because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. He knew who had real faith and who were just posing. And starting in chapter 3, the one who knew all men enters into the number of conversations, and he kind of starts to get at their hearts. And the first conversation is the one we have before us, the conversation with Nicodemus. Now, what kind of people need to be born again? Maybe you've heard that phrase before, you know, I'm a born-again Christian. Now, you might think of a type of person, okay? Some of us might think of the emotionally driven, charismatic Christian, you know. You, you wave your hands when you sing and you close your eyes, you get really excited about Jesus and maybe there's a flag involved and so forth. That's a born-again Christian type. Or you, we might think about Christians who are ultra-right-wing conservatives, and, and so we associate the term with a political party and, and certain political concerns. Or... We might think born-again types are those who have lived really messed up, kind of broken lives. And because they've been addicted to drugs or, or kind of lived these loose, debaucherous lives, they obviously need religion and moral structures. They need to be born again. But friends, this passage undermines all of those assumptions. It presents us with something different. Nicodemus, notice, he was a member in verse 1 of the ruling religious council. He was a Pharisee. So there's no way this guy was just some emotional guy. He was a ruler. He was a teacher. He was well-respected. You know, he had robes on. He was controlled and thoughtful. And no way this guy was broken and messed up. Uh, he, he was a Pharisee. Again, any kind of brokenness would have probably disqualified him. In fact, he's the guy who set up moral structures for other people in the Jewish community. And he kind of noticed he sneaks in quietly at night to talk with Jesus, and we notice both kind of positive and negative elements for how he interacts with Jesus. He's open to Jesus. He's interested in Jesus. He respects Jesus. He calls him rabbi. He has some good questions here, right? But he also doesn't quite understand what's going on. In fact, he's making some assumptions. He thinks Jesus is a teacher who can kind of perform some tricks, some power tricks, you know? And thus, he's probably from God. He's kind of like a prophet, maybe. But notice there's no recognition that Jesus could be God's son or the Messiah. And so Jesus' response in verse 3 is telling. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
Nicodemus, you think you can see me, you can see this kingdom, see something about me, but you can't truly see who I am in this kingdom unless you're born again. Now that that verb born again, it denotes generation or regeneration. So we're talking about something radically new, a massive change, transformation. In fact, it's so radically new and different and transformational that the only kind of human or earthly analogy that could kind of fit is a new birth. It's about as new as you can get, right? Nothing newer than a new birth. We've had a a recent new birth uh, just this past week, Anna and Vinny Savasco, little Remy, came onto the scene, and we're so excited about her. There's, I think, 15 other women in our church that are pregnant. Um, Hey, praise the Lord for new life, right? And so, hey, we're all going to be finding out pretty soon here. You know, as as they go to the hospital, this is going to be confirmed, right? Something brand spanking new is going to be given to them. And that's kind of the analogy that's, that's used here, something that didn't exist before, but it now exists. Friends, this is like spiritual new birth. And what is so stunning about this requirement, this new birth, is that it's put on someone like Nicodemus. I mean, this guy's got a PhD in religion, right? I mean, his, his gifts and his knowledge and his position and his status and his integrity. I mean, if he can't enter the promised kingdom by virtue of his standing and his good works, then who can, right? I mean, who in the world could? Even he had to be born again. So friends, you need more more than just morality and religion and righteousness and goodness to enter the kingdom of God. But there's good news in this, isn't there? No matter how put together you are, you must be born again. And no matter how messed up you are, you can be born again. Isn't that good news? So new birth is a requirement. We see that here. But notice the kingdom, the kingdom of God is the prize And what's unusual here is that John's gospel hardly ever mentions the kingdom of God. Now, Matthew, Mark, Luke, all kinds of references to the kingdom of God. But for John, this is, you know, there's not too many references. So this is significant. For Nicodemus, for this Pharisee, he would have thought that the kingdom of God is far into the future. He would have been thinking about the resurrection of the dead, which is far in the future. He would have been thinking about the the Messiah bringing this kingdom and that all things would be made new. That's all in the future. The restoration of all things, it's in the next stage, right? So where is this new birth from that Jesus is talking about? Friends, it's from the future. We've talked about this some when we studied Revelation 21 and 22. We considered Paul's teaching in 2 Corinthians. Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a, say this with me, new creation. The old has passed. The new has come. So a little seed from the new creation is is placed in our hearts. A piece of God's future has has come back into the present, and it begins to grow in us. That same regenerating force and power which God will restore all things and heal all things and, and remove all evil in the next stage, that same force and power is put in your life and heart if you're a Christian what's the takeaway here? There's so many takeaways. One is just to celebrate this incredible work of God, right? It's just to worship God for sending his son Jesus um, by his spirit that we can be born again, that we can experience this new life. But there's other takeaways too, like, like this. Don't underestimate the power of new birth to change someone. 
So that one person in your family you think is a goner, hopeless, that classmate you've pinned as, you know, no way that person can come to know Jesus, your spouse is, who is so set in his ways, friends, nothing is impossible for God, right? No one is beyond the reach of this new birth activity that God by his spirit can do. You know, I, I think of my campus ministry days. I spent about six years doing campus ministry on Michigan State's campus, and I've seen dozens of young people, young students, claim to become Christians. And it, just a, a tremendous encouragement for my soul, for my wife's soul. Today, I tell you that those who I thought would surely stick it out, those who I thought were so mature and, and came to Bible study with me and attended all the events and conferences, friends, some of them haven't made it. Some of them have abandoned the faith. It's incredibly sad for my wife and I. But I want to tell you about our friend, Mike Wilson. <laughs> this guy was nuts. I mean, as a freshman, like the guy, I mean, highly annoyed me, you know, just, just off his rocker, bouncing off everywhere, just, just the, the ultimate extrovert. And, and, and I looked at him and he claimed to follow Jesus and he came to become a Christian. And I was just remember thinking, even back then, like, I don't know whether this is real. Uh, and, and here we are, and he just sent me a message just a few days ago, and we were catching up a little bit, and I kind of wondered, and I was kind of praying, Lord, does this guy really know you? And it was so refreshing to see that he's walking with Jesus. He's in a local church. He's growing in his faith. He's concerned about the salvation of other people. Mike Wilson, you know, he works for University of Tennessee in, the, in their athletic department. It's, it's just, it's an amazing thing that, that he's got a, a, a little seed of the new creation that's put in him. He's born again, right? And it shows. That's the big thing. It shows. There's evidence of this new life. Now think about this with me. How unlikely is it that a Nicodemus would come to faith in Jesus, be born again? How unlikely is it a Saul, a Saul in the New Testament would come to know Jesus, be born again? Or how about this? How unlikely is it for a jihadist or a staunch atheist to come to faith in Jesus, to be born again? I mean, it would take a miracle for this to happen, right? And that's exactly right. It is a miracle. This new birth is a miracle of God. For those of you that have been praying for a loved one, a friend, oh, would you save them, Lord? What you're praying for is nothing less than a miracle to be performed in their life. That's what we're asking God. We're, we're praying to the God, the, the God who can perform that miracle. There's nobody else. There's nothing else that can help that sort of situation. A little seed, you know, taken from the tree of life in the new creation, and it's brought back in time, and it's placed in hearts. And here's the cool thing. We get a front row seat, don't we? As that seed starts to take life and shape in the midst of a local church. So that's the first thing we see is that the new birth is essential for entry into the kingdom. Here's the second truth we see as we look at verses 4 through 8. New birth is God's work by God's Spirit. The work here is not our own. It's God's work. It's His initiative. It's not our own. And Jesus makes this crystal clear by repeating and expanding the teaching He's already given. So first Nicodemus, notice in verse 4, he doesn't get it. How can someone be born twice? doesn't make sense to him. Jesus jumps right in, starting in verse 5. Notice what he says. Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the Spirit 
is spirit. Now, obviously, Jesus continues to talk about this supernatural birth. But what does that phrase mean? Do you notice that little phrase, water and the spirit? What does that mean? Now, one possible, I'd say unlikely interpretation is that Jesus is talking about kind of natural birth, kind of the waters of uh, physical birth, right? When a woman's water breaks. But then he's also referring to with the spirit, he means supernatural birth. So you've got to be born by your mama and you've got to be born by the spirit, reborn by the spirit. But friends, in the first century, it was uncommon for water to refer to natural or physical birth. So I think it's really unlikely that could be the interpretation here. Here's what's most likely. It's that both water and spirit describe the same thing, the supernatural birth. So a prominent reference in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36, it links the spirit to the water, okay? So let me read you these verses. I will sprinkle, God is speaking, of course, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So it seems like Jesus is saying that the spirit must be poured out like water. And in this new birth, there's kind of a cleansing that takes place alongside this new heart, this new spirit that's given. And notice verse 8. Let me read verse 8 to you. The wind blows where it pleases and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. What he's saying here is the spirit blows where he wishes. You know, no one can kind of conjure up this new birth. No one can work for it or buy it or earn it or grow it. The wind blows where it wills. God, by his spirit, gives the new birth to whom he wills. So here's the solution, friends, to humanity's real problem. You know, our ultimate problem isn't poverty or the loss of biodiversity. Our ultimate problem isn't climate change or the hunger crisis or uh, destructive artificial intelligence. Our, our ultimate problem is not nuclear holocaust or uh, poor children's education or global pandemics or grumpy old men in Russia and North Korea. Our real problem isn't some sort of evil or negativity that kind of we catch like a disease. It's out there. It's unpredictable. I've got it now. It's destructive, but it's not really part of me. Friends, our real problem, that's not a real problem at all. Our real problem is that we are dead, right? We are spiritually dead. Now, how do I know that? What's well, because the Calvinists told me? No, it's not because the Calvinists said anything. It's because of what Jesus says right here. New birth means I was once dead, dead, dead. The Apostle Paul says the same thing in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And you were what? You were dead in your transgressions and sins. And Jesus is saying that and certainly implying that right here. Consider verse 6. Whatever is born of flesh is flesh. So it's not one person on planet Earth that has the capacity to produce this kind of resurrection life in themselves. Flesh begets flesh, right? The Spirit is what begets spiritual life. Listen to John Calvin. By the term born again, Jesus means not the amendment of a part, but the renewal of the whole nature. Hence, it follows that there is nothing in us that is not defective. This is why only God can save us, right? This is why we sing the songs we do. We celebrate the gospel. This is why we come together as a church is because God has saved 
us. Dead things don't produce new things, right? I mean, dead soil doesn't just kind of suddenly produce life. We're talking about a miracle here, friends. In this church, at Faith Church, there's hundreds of walking miracles, right? This is why we're celebrating and singing and worshiping the way we do. Just just a couple days ago, a member at Faith Church texted me and said, hey, can you pray for one of my coworkers? God has been working in her heart for the last few months, and, and she's been asking for prayer, and she's just diagnosed with stage four cancer. So I said, yeah, I'll pray for her. And he said, hey, we're about to have a conversation. So he has this conversation with, with, um, with his coworker, and, and he shares about Christ. He makes the gospel clear. He calls her to faith and repentance. And listen, friends, by God's grace, there's a woman in Cincinnati named Tanya that it seems like is a genuine Christian. Just two days ago, new life. Three days ago, she was dead. She was dead in her sins. Two days ago, new life. And friends, this member gets to see, he, he's got a front row seat, right? He gets, he gets his front row seat. And we, we're his friends. As we're praying alongside Tanya and this, this brother in Christ, we get to see it too. You know, we don't always like to work in these categories, uh, both inside the church, outside the church. Too many of us kind of prefer to walk in other categories. You know, we're born into a, family, a fairly decent kind of neutral life. Most of us are, are good people, well-intentioned. Yeah, we make some mistakes. But then Jesus, his role is to kind of help us become nicer, better, right? But Michael Lawrence, he says, God doesn't make people nice. He makes people new. He doesn't make people just nice or better. He makes people new. That's so profound to me. And I think it really, it really matches up with what we see here in, in Nicodemus's life too. He was a Pharisee in the first century. And, and he believed that to get into this kingdom, you got to be nice. Be a good Jew. Follow the Mosaic law. Show up at these festivals. Keep up with the sacrifices, right? Nice people get into the kingdom. Today, there's a lot of nice people in our lives, in Milford, in Loveland, etc. Nice people who are politically aware and socially involved and engaged in their communities. They do nice things for their families and neighborhoods. They're nice people. But are they new creatures? Are they new creations? Has the Spirit of God wrought that work in them? And listen, friends, there's a danger with the gospel of nice because it allows you to kind of boost yourself up to others or God, right? Look at me. It's a means of self-justification. And that is attractive to us, isn't it? Sometimes the gospel of nice kind of sneaks into our churches as well. Even though we hold to the, the gospel of grace and that works, sometimes our functional theology may say something different. Perhaps it shows up in an overly optimistic view of people or a domesticated, simplistic view of God. Or a vision of the Christian life that's basically moral self-reform. And these thoughts show up subtly in our churches. Where do they show up? How do they show up? Well, sometimes we sanitize our sins by calling them mistakes. <laughs> you know, we use Bible stories to teach morality instead of showcasing Jesus. We sing songs that make us feel good emotionally rather than songs that robustly recognize and affirm and teach the full counsel of the Bible. We avoid talk of judgment or hell or church discipline. Man, that makes us feel way too uncomfortable. And, and we're quick to see the sins of other people or the sins of the world, but we fail to recognize our own sins. Church becomes another way just to better yourself, 
And friends, when this kind of environment happens, when this kind of culture is, is, is bred in local churches, people are lulled into thinking they're genuine Christians when sometimes they're just nice people doing some Christian things and having Christian friends. Jesus is talking to a man who did a lot of religious things and he's awfully nice and he knew a lot of good theology, but he wasn't born again. We got to start where Jesus starts. Are you born again? That's the implied question in this passage. You know, there's a pastor in college when I was a freshman um, who, after preaching the sermon and getting through kind of the, the worship service, I, I walked up to him and I was just chatting with him a little bit. And after about 10 minutes of meeting me, he asked me that very question. It's pretty awkward. And I was just like 18 year old kid. He's like 72. And he's like, Godwin, are you born again? And I, wow. And I kind of chuckled slightly offended. Internally, I mocked him. Of course I'm born again. Like, haven't you seen my like spiritual resume for the last 18 years? Haven't you seen that I've been to youth group for years? Haven't you seen that I attend church? And sure, I've, I've kind of intellectually assented to Jesus. Don't look at my life though, but do you see my intellectual convictions? Friends, I was nice, but I wasn't new. That would take another six or 12 months. Friends, why have so many, I don't say this lightly, why have so many abandoned the church over the last few decades? I've got friends, I've got people in my head right now. Why have so many left Christ? Why do we have so many prodigal children that we're praying for? Too many of us have learned the message of nice. You know, Jesus promises to improve us. Never mind that he's called you to die to yourself and follow him with your life. So, so be nice. Just, just kind of maybe, you know, assume that you're a new creation. Let me, let me teach you how to serve in Jesus's name. Never mind that you may not actually know Jesus, have affection for Jesus, follow Jesus. Why have our loved ones left the faith? Friends, I don't think they've given up on being nice. They've discovered that they don't need Jesus to be nice. And so they walk away and they're still trying to be nice, but they're looking elsewhere. Friends, God, through his spirit, in his son Jesus, doesn't just offer nice. He wants you to be nice. He wants you to produce the fruit of the spirit, which means you'll be nice. But, but what's behind that is new. And perhaps there's some in this room that need to hear this. You've lulled yourself into thinking that you're a Christian when you're not. And there's no shame in that. Just become self-aware. Repent of your sins. Turn. Turn and walk with him. You can do that right now. You can do that this morning. You can do it. You can do it. Listen to how the New Testament describes Christians. The language of the New Testament is so clear. It's crystal clear. Paul says we are new creatures. Paul says that we are new creations. Jesus says elsewhere we are sheep and not goats. We are wheat and not Chef. I mean, these two entities are, are ontologically, biologically, molecularly different, right? There, there's a stark difference. Friends, you cannot have one foot in Egypt and one foot in the promised land and, that, and then claim that you are a follower of God. That doesn't make sense to God. Or, as you reflect upon the scriptures, we're not just bad sometimes and need to get better. We are dead and need to be made alive. 
Here's the third truth about the new birth. You'll see it on your screen. New birth is only possible through God's Son. I want you to put your eyes on verses 9 through 15. Our guy, Nicodemus, is still confused. He's still trying to figure out what is Jesus talking about. Look at verse 9. He says, how can these things be? Who can blame him, right? Jesus is operating on a different wavelength here. He's talking about stuff that's totally different. I mean, uh, the, the religion of the day, the religion of the Jews is essentially do good, be nice, and you'll get in. That's a summary of every religion, whether it's ancient or current. Jesus is obviously talking about something radically different. And so Nicodemus doesn't understand. But on the other hand, Nicodemus should have known better. Notice Jesus' gentle rebuke in verse 10. Are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things, Jesus replied? Nicodemus was well-versed in the Old Testament Scriptures. He was an established teacher. He would stand up with his dress robes and tell people about Jesus, excuse me, tell people about the Old Testament. And yet he doesn't see the things that Jesus is talking about from the Old Testament. You see, in the Old Testament, there was an expectation and hope for a new work of the Spirit in concert with God's coming kingdom. We see this in Ezekiel and Isaiah and Joel, the pouring out of the Spirit. And in this, this kingdom, it's not a kingdom of might or power, it's the kingdom of the Spirit. And so if Nicodemus would have examined the Old Testament more carefully, more thoroughly, he would have seen what Jesus is talking about. And this kind of it reminds me, friends, we, we understand today, in the 21st century, we understand Jesus, we understand his kingdom, we understand the work of the Spirit when we read the Old Testament. Some of you might think, man, the Old Testament, it's kind of strange and weird, and there's some good stories here and there, but is it applicable to my life? It, it feels so kind of disconnected for the, from the 21st century world. Well, let Jesus' rebuke of Nicodemus encourage you to reconsider your approach to the Old Testament. There's pictures and sights and sounds and prophetic words about Jesus and the kingdom that kind of fill out who Jesus is as you read it, and it'll encourage you and strengthen your faith. So read the Old Testament. If you haven't read it recently, read the Old Testament. You know, I find something else really encouraging about Nicodemus's example here. He doesn't just show up here in chapter 3. He actually shows up two more times in the Gospel of John. So in chapter 3, he doesn't get it. We see this, right? We're kind of like, come on, dude, get it. But he doesn't get it. In chapter 7, he sees the hypocrisy, the wickedness of his fellow Pharisees when they reject Jesus. He's starting to get a little bit. But here's a crazy thing. In, in, in chapter 19, he joins Joseph of Arimathea in burying Jesus. All right? I mean, and, and so you see this, like, incredible, like, like, spiritual development of this guy through the gospel of John, right? It's, it's kind of the spiritual journey, and, and he's making his way eventually to the side of Jesus. It, it's so cool to see that. And, and so, yes, the Spirit is absolutely essential for this thing called new birth, and yet, friends, sometimes the Spirit's work is slow, right? Sometimes spiritual understanding takes time to develop. I can think of so many friends of mine. I think of my friend Mark, who for years, I mean, just years, he was with the church and he hung out with Christians. And, you know, I mean, it, I was like, this guy must be a Christian. I mean, it's been years. I think of my sister, who we prayed for 10 years to come to know Jesus, to come to faith for this new birth to occur. And it, I mean, it was like 10 years. She was in Hawaii. The Spirit sometimes takes time. 
as the Spirit works amongst our loved ones. And so, friends, let me ask you this question. Are you patient with those you are evangelizing? Sometimes we press for a decision when the Holy Spirit isn't working, and this may lead to false conversions. So they need time, right? Because the Spirit is working perhaps slowly or slower than you would like. And so we pray and and we beseech the Lord. We beseech the Lord to pour out His Spirit upon our loved ones. But the Spirit, the the wind blows as, as the wind wills. And so the Spirit does as well. Look at verse 12. It acts kind of as a transition verse here. Basically, Jesus says, listen, if I told you these earthly things about this new birth and you don't get it, then how in the world are you going to understand other heavenly things? And those heavenly things he's about to share in verses 13 through 15. Let me read these verses. No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. He's, of course, referring to himself. Verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So these are powerful statements that Jesus is making here about himself, about how he fulfills the Old Testament, that that he's first of all the son of man. You may have heard of that before. That's a title given back in Daniel chapter 7, the son of man who fights on behalf of the faithful and, and the ancient of days, God the Father gives the son of man sovereignty. But then as we kind of consider the new, new birth context, we see here Jesus is the focal point of the new birth. It's really cool stuff here. I want you to see this. Why is Jesus suddenly talking about Moses and snakes? Maybe this is like the part of, you know, when you're doing your Bible reading and you get to that verse or those verses and you're like, oh, I'm going to sniff it. Let's get to John 3.16. Like, I get that verse, right? But this verse, like, what is, what's going on here? Well, he's referring to an incident in Numbers 21. Now, you don't need to turn there. Let me just kind of quickly summarize. So in Numbers 21, Israel was wandering in the wilderness and they go to Moses and they do something we all do when we're on a road trip. Complain, right? Like, are we there yet? Like, I want some food. Can we go back to Egypt? Like, what's going on here, Moses? And so as a way to kind of discipline and train them, God sends snakes to bite them. And, and, and these are poisonous snakes. And, and so they're, they're kind of like on their way to death. And so in response, they humble themselves and they repent repent of their sins. And God then tells Moses to put up this bronze snake on a pole. And anyone who has kind of this this venom that's taking their life, if they look at the bronze snake, they will live. It's incredible, right? This This was God's way of teaching Israel that healing and salvation come through looking at the one he will lift up. It's nuts. This is before Jesus has gone to the cross. What an incredible picture. A bronze snake on a pole so that those bitten could look and be healed. Jesus was put on a pole. He was put on a cross, a piece of wood, and those who look to him can be saved, right? They can have life. You've got people bitten by snakes who then look at a snake. They're cured. With Jesus, you have people poisoned by the venom of sin, coursing through the sinews of their souls, a plague of sin that demands the death of not only their bodies but their souls. And the only antidote is to look upon another death. A God-man who has been poisoned and cursed on our behalf so that we might have life if we look to him by faith. Friends, why did Jesus, why did, why did Jesus need to be lifted up on a cross? It's not because a good man was speaking to power and then suffered for it. It's not because some religious leader was so committed to his convictions that he was martyred. 
It's not because it was a series of unfortunate events showcasing the violence and cruelty of mankind. It's not because a well-meaning guy tried to change the world and he was ended, ended up being crushed by it. Friends, the, the, the cross was not an accident. It was prophesied in the Old Testament. It was pictured in the Old Testament, as we can see here, which means it was wholly planned by God, by a loving God. He didn't leave us helpless. He doesn't leave us hopeless. And this lifting up was the very mission of the Son of Man. He came to die. He came to die, to be put on this pole so that those who believe can be given this new birth. And this belief that we're talking about is not just that intellectual ascent. It's not just a bunch of people saying, hey, we really like you, Jesus. You know, um, maybe I can imitate your life a little bit and, and draw out some good, wise principles for living. No, this is a belief that rests upon the cross alone for salvation. Just like the Israelites were resting upon this, this sight of this bronze serpent for their salvation, believing in Jesus, believing in Jesus, believing that he would provide the remedy for the poison that's in our souls. That's what that belief is. What does it mean? What does it mean for every person in this room? If you're a Christian, if you're not, Christian, not a Christian, well, here's what this means. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Put your eyes, put your eyes of faith onto Christ. Not just in that early moment you experience this new birth, but for every moment ahead, for every moment you need more of that poison to be drawn out of your souls, look to Christ. For every moment you struggle and strain and suffer in this life, look to Christ. For every time you need help and comfort and joy, look to Christ on the pole. For it's from him. It's from him that comes this new birth. It's from him that comes new life. Amen? Amen. Let's take a moment now to... Reflect on this passage, but also prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper.